Okay, here we go. Uh, turn to the book of Luke. Uh, this is what we do here with Little Church. We just study the Bible verse by verse, and we're now up to chapter 4. And we, ladies and gentlemen, are going to cover 13 verses here in the next 40 minutes. I'm not saying this is the only time we're going to cover these 13 verses, but... And the goal here is this. We want to um, not just skim the verses of the Bible, but we want to get deep into it. We want to chew it. We like to dig into it. We want meat, because this is our, the lamp unto our feet. This is the, the, the thing that, that makes us, uh, gives us uh, kingdom principles and fuels our, our life as kingdom people. This message as I have been preparing this, things came together, and there is a—the uh, core of this message is so, so radical. It is—it gets us as deep as you get in, in the end of the Word, and it's beautiful. I don't know if my expression of it will be as beautiful as it is. In fact, I'm sure it won't be. But I want us to keep our thinking caps on and our hearts open as we dig into this. The things I'll be talking about are not obvious, but they are biblical. In fact, they're centrally— centrally they're, they're, they're central truths of the Bible. And um, so, so really attend to this. I'm calling this message, entitling it, The Temptation of Practical Goodness, which already tells you up front it's going to be weird. All right, so hang with me here. Luke chapter 4. Jesus full, of, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was understandably hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live by bread alone. The devil then led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. And there's a profound message in there, but that's not what I'm going to preach on this morning. But just think about that one. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to a Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And I want us to be thinking up front here. Why did he go to Jerusalem and put him on the highest point of the temple? If the temptation was just to throw yourself down from a high place, he was already in a high place. So we'll get to that later, but just be thinking about that. And at, at the highest point of the temple, he said to, to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will, lift, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to a test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And that we read later on in this gospel was uh, at the Last Supper. Father, just give me succinctness of expression and the words that will be used by you to unlock truths, revelation in our mind and in our heart. Holy Spirit, let your anointing be on this message and use it to build your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, review. Uh, we've seen the last two weeks, in essence, this that uh, there, from a biblical perspective, humanity forms a sort of organic whole. It goes really against our Western individualistic mindset, but from a biblical perspective, human beings form an or organic whole. Adam, because of his rebellion, brought this organic whole into a polluted state. 
And so the Bible talks about us being fallen in Adam, being sinful in Adam. This is what the Bible, the biblical concept of original sin, that humanity as an organic whole has been polluted. And we all contribute to that pollution, and we all suffer from that pollution. But we don't stand or fall alone. Jesus came into this world, we've seen. This is part of the, the point of what Luke's getting at in this passage this morning, uh, especially as it ties back into the genealogy of the previous chapter. Jesus is the new Adam. He, he came to found a new humanity. And this humanity is the unpolluted humanity. Instead of having uh, Adam's legacy being pumped into our veins, it's now got Jesus' righteousness being pumped into our veins. It's a new humanity in Christ Jesus. Every individual, in a sense, is in Christ. Now, what we call discipleship is the process of transitioning from the old Adam to the new Adam. It's happening on a global scale, but it's also happening in each one of our lives individually. And the goal is for us to get our thoughts and to get our heart and to get our actions and to get everything we're about to line up with the truth of who we already are in Christ. And to do that, we've got to let go of the old, let go of the old self, the old Adam. The old Adam, in some ways, is secure. We're used to the old Adam. Our thoughts habitually think old Adam thoughts. But the challenge of discipleship is not to create something new because the new is already there. The challenge is just to get our life, our being, our feelings, our attitudes to line up with what is already true. That's our identity in Christ. Temptation is the opposite of that. Temptation is the pull of the old on the new. And we are tempted all the time to fall back into our old ways of thinking, old ways of lo looking at things and, and whatnot. Uh, that is the essence of temptation. And what I want to do now is to take this a step further. Follow the rabbit down the rabbit hole further. As we look at the nature of temptation, and I'm going to use the temptation of Jesus to do this. What we're going to see here is that what's at the theme of these temptations, what's at stake in each of these temptations is this. The question is, what kind of son of God is Jesus going to be? Jesus has just been introduced as the son of God, and now comes the temptation. The new humanity is just getting started, and now comes the temptation. Satan always loves to nip things in the bud. So right here before Jesus ever does any ministry, he comes with a temptation. And the question is, what kind of son of God, what kind of Lord are you going to be? How are you going to use your identity and how are you going to use your power in the world? Very important here. The temptation is not to an obvious sin. That wouldn't have been tempting to Jesus. The temptation is rather to an obvious good. Satan doesn't come and tempt Jesus with a VH1 video clip and saying, dude, you know, VH1, uh, the, I don't know if you've seen it, but they, you know, the rock star uh, stuff. Uh, well, he, he doesn't say, look, I'll make you a rock star and you get to wear it. See, all of a sudden I realize probably a lot of people don't know what VH1 is. It's a channel where there's all the rap artists. And, you know, and so he doesn't say, you know, Jesus, look, if you'll just follow me, well, then I'll give you, you can have 10 girls hanging on you and, with, and all these uh, jewels on you and drive a Lexus. He doesn't tempt Jesus with that because that wouldn't have been tempting to Jesus. What he tempts Jesus with is the good, things that are obviously good. So let's look at this more, more, more deeply. Let's take each of these three temptations. The first temptation is to change stone into bread. And the question that's being asked in this temptation is this. Will Jesus be a Lord who uses supernatural power to bring immediate relief to himself and also to others? Is Jesus going to be a 
turning stone into bread kind of savior to feed the world. This could be called the temptation of immediate humanitarian power. And the devil's raising a good question. That's why it's a temptation. The issue is this. Jesus, if you've got the power, and you do, to turn stone into bread, then why should you or anyone else ever go hungry again? Just turn stone into bread. Feed the world. So also with your supernatural power in a lot of other ways. Fix the problems of the world right here and right now. The second temptation is where Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms, all the governments, all the politics of the world. And, the, and he offers it to him. And the issue here is this. Will Jesus be a Lord who rules the world through ordinary political means? The ordinary political way. Will he be just a hyped up version of an ordinary ruler? And this we could call the temptation of political power. And once again, the devil is raising a good question. And that's why it's a temptation. He's saying, Jesus, look, if you have the means of acquiring all the political power in the world, why should any human being ever suffer under incompetent and evil rulers again? Jesus, you can right now alleviate so much suffering by putting in place around the world the right form of government, pass all the right laws, have all the right legislation, and get rid of all the evildoers. You can do that. Why wouldn't you do that? That's a good question. It, the question is so baffling that Christians throughout history and many yet today can't quite believe that Jesus said no to it, which is why many are still trying to get as much political power for Jesus as possible. But Jesus said no to it. No thanks, I decline that offer. And I submit that followers of Jesus in Jesus' name should do the same. The third temptation is when the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem and puts them on the top of the temple. Now, why did they go to Jerusalem and why the top of the temple? If the temptation was just to jump off a cliff and get saved, right, then why didn't he just jump off a cliff? But then, what would be very tempting about that? Oh boy, I get to fall and not get killed. No, there's a temptation here. The answer to this is this. Jerusalem, and more particularly the temple, was the center of the Jewish faith. It was, from a Jewish worldview, it was the center of what God's doing in the world. When people thought about a visual representation of, of God's intersection with the world, from a Jewish perspective, it was the temple. So this temptation is this. Uh, the devil's tempting Jesus to use his supernatural power to be, visibly become the center of the Jewish faith. And to prove to all God's people that, in fact, he is who he really is, the Son of God. The question is this. Will Jesus be a Lord who uses supernatural power to make his identity obvious to people? And this is the temptation of religious power. And once again, the devil is raising a good question. That's why it's a genuine temptation. He's saying this, Jesus, if you can do miracles anytime and anywhere you want, why don't you use them strategically in a way that would convince all the people who are looking for it that in fact you are the Son of God? You, you do these miracles out there on the hillside of Galilee and, and out there in the villages, but those are among poor people. Those are among nobodies. And so there's always plausible deniability on the part of the leadership. But why don't you just strategically do a miracle at the right time in the right place before the right people, and then you can convince the world that, in fact, you are the Son of God. You go up at the top of the temple, and everybody's going to see you. Cast yourself down, and now you've just won all of Judaism. It's a good, legitimate question. Why didn't Jesus use miracles at strategic moments when he's being tried, for example, before the high priest in the Sanhedrin? 
you know, levitate four feet off the ground, do a couple spins, and you got the crowd. Oh, you want me to prove that I'm a son of God? Watch this. He doesn't do it. When he's on the cross, you know, they say, if you're the son of God, come down. You know, why didn't he just go, okay, boop, boop. <laughs> oh, that, that was kind of rough. No, why doesn't he come down and, and, and prove unequivocally uh, that uh, he is the son of God? Why? Why not use your power to convince people? Why let them go on in their ignorance? It's a good question. See, all these temptations, they're not to do obvious evil. They're rather to do obvious good. And they're all ways of saying, they're all different ways of saying this. Jesus, get practical. Do good things. Why would God not want to feed all the people right here and right now? Why would God not want you to rule the world politically? Why wouldn't God want you to alleviate suffering caused by incompetent or evil uh, rulers? Why wouldn't God want everybody to know your true identity? Show them yourself. Do the miracles. Win the crowd now. Why should you die to prove uh, that you're the Son of God? You can have all the good that you're looking for, and neither you or anyone else has to suffer because of it. It's, it's a genuine temptation. In fact, you see a little echo of this temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus, there facing the cross, sweating drops of blood, he says, Father, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way of attaining our objective without me having to go through this? But of course, it wasn't possible, and so Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. Now, some folks here in this crowd might be thinking to themselves right now, well, those are good questions, and I'd like some answers. <laughs> why, if God is omnipotent and cares about the world, why are there still starving people? Why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why doesn't Jesus just appear in the clouds in a giant Jesus kind of way and say, yes, I, the Christians are right, I am the Son of God. Why does, why does God have to make it so difficult for us? These are good questions. They're, they're, they're generally under the rubric of the problem of evil. And if those are questions that you're interested in, I'm sorry to let you down, but I'm not going to preach on those here this morning. Uh, I encourage you, if, they, if those are issues you wrestle with, and they're very good issues, I think we can make some headway in answering them. Uh, I, I weigh in on the issue in my book, Is God to Blame? and uh, Satan, the Problem of Evil. So you can check those out if you want. But this morning, I want to actually address an even a more fundamental question, a more fundamental issue. And that is, what, what do you, how do you press forward when it doesn't make sense? The temptation that Jesus is faced with is this. It's the temptation to put practical goodness before what may in fact look like irrational faithfulness to God. This is not just the temptation that Jesus went through. It is in one form or another, the temptation we all go through because it is the essence of temptation. And I want us to see this. Now, you're going to have to really put your thinking caps on at this point. Ready? Here we go. We said in the last several weeks that Luke is intentionally trying to draw a parallel between Jesus and Adam. Uh, Jesus is the second Adam. He is uh, founding a new, a new humanity. Luke mentions Adam last in his genealogy because he wants readers to be thinking about Adam's temptation as they're reading about Jesus' temptation. And so the temptation that Jesus goes through is really a repetition of the temptation that Adam went through. So we can learn a lot about the temptation of Jesus by looking at Adam's temptation and vice versa. If you look at Genesis 3 where we read about the temptation of Adam and Eve, 
you'll see here that, in fact, the two temptations parallel. They both get to the heart of what it is to be tempted. They both have to do with the temptation to put practical goodness before what may look like irrational faithfulness to God. Now, to see this, to, to, to see this, ask yourself this question. Why was the original tree, the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden, called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why wasn't it called the tree of the VH1 video clip, the VH1 lifestyle? Why wasn't it called the, the, the tree of the rich and famous? Why wasn't it called the rich of greed, the rich of lust, the, rich, the, the tree of licentiousness, or whatever? Why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What's so bad about the knowledge of good and evil? In fact, isn't it good to have the knowledge of good and evil? And the minute you ask that question, now you're getting to the heart of what it is to be tempted. Because this is exactly what the devil does with Eve in Genesis 3. Comes up to Eve and says, in essence, what is so bad about that tree? Eve, think, let's get practical. Look at that tree. And the Bible says she looked at it and it was good. It was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was good to make one wise. And the devil's going, get practical, that's a good tree. What on earth could be wrong with knowing good or evil? Why, maybe God is threatened by that tree. Maybe that's why, if he was a loving God, do you think he would have forbidden you to have something as good as that? Uh, you know, you, are you going to trust a God who is threatened by this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What you can do, Eve, this is what the devil's saying to Eve in Genesis 3. Uh, you don't have to rely on God to know about good and evil. You can do that for yourself. You can be wise like God is wise. You can judge like God judges. You can know good and evil like God knows good and evil. You can get to define good and evil, and then you can get to promote your good and resist your evil. And isn't that a practical good thing for you to do for you and your descendants? It is the essence of all temptation, practical goodness before faithfulness. Perhaps Eve doesn't understand why God prohibited that tree, but she's called to walk faithful, and that's the thing that she and Adam don't do. This is the original temptation, and this is the original sin. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in essence, what it means is this. You, or we, define good, and we define evil, and we act practically and in our own self-interest on this basis. We know what is good, and we know what is evil, and so we pursue the good, and we persecute the evil as our self-interest. If you think about it, this lies at the heart of all sin. That's why it's the first sin in the Bible, the foundational, original sin of the Bible. Think about it. When a person sins, whatever the sin may be, they're doing it because in some way they see it as a good. If they didn't see it as a good, they wouldn't do it. In what they do may look evil to you. It may look horrendous to you, but in their frame of reference, it's obviously a good. That's why they go for it. No one goes for something that is ugly to them, that is evil to them. If they say, I like the evil, it's because in some way they're framing evil as a good. Which is why, by the way, if any sin that you struggle with, at the core of getting free is to reframe it not as a good but as an evil. For example, if you're addicted to pornography, uh, as long as your brain is representing that as a good thing in your brain, you're going to be drawn towards it. It is a good. So you need to see what God sees and, and represent it in your brain as an evil. The root of all sin is that we call good what is actually evil, and we call evil what is actually good, and we don't notice the difference. Milton, in his famous, great, but too long poem, Paradise Lost, 
He captures this so beautifully when he has the devil, Lucifer, say right at the beginning of his rebellion, he makes this proclamation, evil be thou my good. Evil be thou my good. And what Lucifer is saying here is this, what God calls evil, I call good. And, and, and that, that's going to be what I pursue. And so then he takes practical steps to bring about what he views as good. And that's what leads to the rebellion in heaven and the cosmic war that we're still a part of. The fall is that everyone acts out of their personal and cultural version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What we judge to be good and what we judge to be evil. And the most sinister thing about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that once you eat of this tree, and we all do, it's the essence of the old Adam, but once you eat of it, now what you hold to be good and what you hold to be evil, in essence at least, is obvious to you. When we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's like we download a, a program, uh, a file. We, it's like Prometheus stealing fire from heaven. We steal this omniscience from heaven and, and put it into our brain, and now there's this mechanism in us that makes us way too confident that we have the confidence of God that we really know what is going on. We know what is good. We know what is evil. And it's internal to us. The, we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now, now it's like we have an internalized judgment grid that's part of how we look at ourselves even, how we look at the world, how we look at God. So we can't step outside of it and critique it very well. We don't notice how arbitrary and socially conditioned our judgments are. Other people may notice it, but we don't notice it because we're on the inside of it. Or rather, this forbidden tree is on the inside of us. Here's a classic example of it. And this obviousness is what's the problem. Classic example, probably the historically most important example. That's why I refer to it with some frequency. The early church for the first three centuries looked a whole lot like Jesus dying on a cross for those who were persecuting them. Uh, they were a persecuted minority, and uh, uh, they, the way they died and the way they served the world was a witness to the reality of Jesus Christ. And, and uh, uh, the Christianity grew like wildfire, despite the fact that massive amounts of Christians were being killed. It grew incredibly. No one in the early church was trying to control society. They just were serving society and, and, and dying for society, and the church grew. And then the fourth century came, and through a lot of historical means, the church became the, the, the dominant political power. And all of a sudden, it became obvious to many, not all, but many church leaders, such as St. Augustine, that God had given us this new governmental political authority. And if God obviously has given us this new political authority, then we obviously are called to use it in practical ways. We're called to promote practical goodness through political means. And immediately we start putting people to death in the name of Jesus to further practical goodness. Well, we've got to be practical here. We've got this authority. Look at all the good we can do, and we have a superior wisdom and a superior knowledge, and no wonder God gave us this because we're so good at running the world, and we're going to take over the world for Jesus Christ, and we start putting people to death. Now, if you enter into their frame of reference, it's, it was totally obvious to them. In fact, if you read Augustine or Aquinas or Calvin or Luther or a lot of church fathers, here's how they argue. Let's be practical. Let's just be practical here. We've got the authority, the means of putting this heretic to death burning him alive at a stake. Why wouldn't we do that? He's going to suffer eternal fire anyways. If we don't kill him, he'll be spreading his heresy and, and bring thousands of people into hell. Let's, let's put him to death now. And uh, who knows, maybe he'll repent, but at least we're saving the other thousand. How look at You kill one, you save a thousand. Just be practical. We're promoting goodness here, folks. And then comes a long history of, of bloodshed in Jesus' name and the beauty of the kingdom is lost. But it's so obvious to them, it just makes sense. 
But see, from a biblical perspective, there's nothing obvious about that. In fact, from a biblical perspective, it's obviously wrong. From a biblical perspective, Jesus, uh, this is the very temptation that Jesus resisted. He said no thanks to that kind of power. Four centuries later, Augustine thinks it's obvious that God gave him that power. And Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Jesus tells us to bless those who persecute us. Jesus doesn't say persecute them. And yet, boom, we have this whole, it just shows you how we can be so conditioned by a culture that what looks like good to us is actually an evil. The temptation that the early church faced in the fourth century, the temptation that Augustine faced, is the same temptation in essence that, e, that Adam and Eve faced. It's the same temptation that Jesus faced and, and resisted. And it's in essence the same temptation that we face every day of our life. The temptation is to put practical goodness before what may in fact look to us in our culturally conditioned knowledge of good and evil, it may in fact look to us to be an irrational faithfulness to God. The temptation is to define good and evil on our own and to, on this basis, act practically to further our self-interest. And it is the root of all sin. It's the root of all evil. It is the cause of all bloodshed throughout history. All the wars, all the fighting, all the violence are done not in the name of evil. No one's out there saying, hey, let's be evil against the good guys. No, everyone thinks they're promoting practical goodness. It's obvious that we're right, obvious that they're wrong. They're in the way of our rightness. They got to go. And that's what's made the merry-go-round of history be such a bloody merry-go-round. Obviously, my tribe is better than your tribe. Obviously, my religion is better than your religion. Obviously, my national ideas are better than your national ideas. And boom, there's the bloodshed, and it goes on and on and on and on. And this, folks, is life in Adam. This is, this is life in bondage to the, to, to the devil. This is life in bondage to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's ugly, and it's angry, and it's violent. But kingdom people, we are called to have a different kind of life. Amen? We are called to be part of a different humanity. We are called and empowered to be free from the ugly, angry, violent, old humanity. And the reason is because we've been called and empowered to put faithfulness before practical goodness. You are in Christ. You're a new nature in Christ. Old things have passed away. You really do have a new nature. And in this new nature, you've got a new heart and a new mind and a new spirit. You're empowered to see the world in a new way, empowered to see other people in a new way, and even empowered to see your enemies in a new way. You've been set free in principle from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you've been set free from your culturally conditioned judgment, which means you've been set free if you say yes to this, to see the beauty of God and to see the beauty of every other person on the planet, including your enemies, and to agree with God that they are with God dying for. You've been set free to dance with the triune God and to share in this unconditional love and, and, and to, to, to receive and enjoy the power and the authority and the joy and the peace and the life of God himself. And this is the kingdom and this is beautiful and it drives me wild when I think about it. This is how God always wanted humanity to be. To be free of the burden of fixing the world with our knowledge of good and evil. That is life itself. But we are tempted. We are tempted. We face temptation. We're empowered to overcome it because we're in Christ, but we do have to overcome it. And the temptation is really summarized in this question. And it was the same for Adam and Eve, same for Jesus, same for Augustine, same for us. Will you resist the temptation to put practical goodness before what may look like irrational faithfulness to God? Now, I'm not saying that we should go out of our way to be impractical. I'm certainly not saying we should go out of our way not to be good. Uh, for most of life, be practical, be good, wonderful. In fact, some of us need to take a practical pill so we're a little more practical. Got that. 
in your relationships and finances, be practical. But practical goodness isn't supposed to be Lord of your life. Jesus Christ is, and your faithfulness to Jesus Christ has got to be placed before your practical goodness. The only way we'll ever get free of our addiction to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to pledge to put faithfulness before our practicality. The only way we're ever, ever going to love like God calls us to love in that radical fashion is to collapse our omniscience mechanism, our tree of the knowledge of good and evil addiction, to collapse that and put uh, practical goodness as a second or third priority behind faithfulness to God. Because we are called to be faithful, whether it looks rational or not. We're called to be faithful, whether it looks practical or not. We're called to be faithful, whether it benefits us or not. We're called to be faithful, whatever it costs, whatever sacrifices have to be made. However we've got to bleed, we're called to walk the walk of Jesus Christ, carrying the cross to Calvary in service to the world. And to do that, we've got to resist the perpetual pull, temptation, towards making practical goodness Lord of our life. We've got to resist the constant pull to be defined by what our culture or our tribe defines as practical goodness. To make it a little more concrete, we've got to resist the constant pull to be normal. <laughs> to be normal Americans, doing normal things, adopting normal values, having normal beliefs, we've got to resist the constant pull to absorb into our own being the American version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've got to resist the pull to just be doing what, every, what, what, what normal Americans do and believing what normal Americans believe and valuing what, other, what, what normal Americans value. Not that that's all wrong, but there's something that should be set, setting us apart from that. We've got to resist the perpetual pull to let our faith be reduced to a Sunday morning thing we just do. We've got to resist the perpetual pull to sell out on God and, and, and buy into a normal, sanitized, mediocre, safe, self-serving, Americanized Christianity. Amen? And we've got to resist the constant pull then to buy into a normal, sanitized, mediocre, nice, self-serving Jesus. Because we're not called to serve an Americanized Jesus. We're called to serve the revolutionary Jesus. We're not called to follow an Americanized gospel. We're called to follow the revolutionary gospel. And we're not called to be citizens of the kingdom of America. We're called to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And that is revolutionary. So we're called to live in radical love. We're called to live radically, love radically, sing radically, living on the edge, serving radically, sacrificing radically. Every single thing about Jesus is radical. It's, it's, out, it's on the edge. It's, it, it's different from the culture at large. In fact, if we're living the kingdom consistently, and that's what we're called to, it's got to look weird to the culture at large. It's supposed to look weird to the culture at large. I hope it looks weird to the culture at large. Because what is obvious to them, what, what it was just normal practical goodness for them, is not obvious to you any longer because you're part of a new humanity. It's obvious to others that hey, you should just pursue the American dream. That's just practical goodness. But see, you know, if you start pursuing the kingdom of God dream, uh, they might start thinking you're a little bit weird. It's normal American thinking to acquire as much as possible and not have much other thought about what you could do with it. So if you start living in outrageous kingdom generosity, you're going to look weird. It's normal to just maximize as much comfort as possible, live life as conveniently as possible. Who goes looking for trouble? But Jesus calls us to set up shop at the gates of hell and storm the gates of hell and go looking for darkness so you can bring light and go looking for despair so you can bring hope and go looking for hatred so you can bring love. And if you do that consistently, you're going to look weird. You're supposed to look weird. I hope you look weird. 
It's normal in the culture to just sleep with whoever you want to, whenever you want to, however you want to. If it moves and you like it, you can sleep with it. So if you start honoring God with your sexuality, don't mean to be too graphic here, but you start honoring God with your sexuality and you're going to look weird. People are going to think you're just out of it. It is the most natural thing in the world, isn't it? To hate your national enemies. Well, that's just, that's as natural and normal and, and practically good as the American pie, however that expression goes. So if you start loving your enemies and praying for your enemies, you're going to look weird. In fact, you know, people might not just think you're weird. They might, they might really get angry at you. In fact, I can almost promise you that they'll get angry at you. In fact, I bet a couple of you are getting angry at me right now. I was, at a, I, I, I was on a talk show, a uh, radio talk show a couple weeks ago, and in the course of the discussion, the person said, well, you know, okay, okay, look at this non-political kingdom you're talking about, or, uh, you know, so, like, do you, do, you, do you pray for our troops? And I said, well, yeah, I pray for our troops because I pray for peace so that we won't need any troops. All right? And I said, yes, I, I want to pray for our troops and blessing on them, but I also pray for our enemies. Um, and he said, he, he just, he became uncorked. And I understand, and I, 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 I understand his, you know, you lost a buddy in the war, you have a kid in the war. I mean, this is deep emotional stuff. I'm not saying this is easy, folks. No one's saying this is easy. But, but he was saying, that, look, you're praying for the people who are killing uh, American soldiers over there. That is unchristian. That's unpatriotic. That's anti-American. Uh, you know, I, here's where I get, I'm a Christian, but here's where I get off. And then the radio host, uh, he says, well, you know what, here's where I get off too. Man, you just sucked the air right out of the room when you said that. It's like, sorry, folks, but I didn't make this off. I'm quoting Jesus here. You know, Luke chapter 6, he says, pray for your enemies, love, for those, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. I didn't make it up. Amen. And see, it is, yes, that's weird. I grant you that that's weird, but it's supposed to be weird. It's supposed to look different. And our willingness to live this different kind of life and not let practical goodness, culturally defined practical goodness, be Lord of our life, but to let faithfulness to Jesus be Lord of our life, our willingness to do that is beautiful. And it puts Jesus on display. It shows forth the beauty of the kingdom. And if people are hungry for it, they'll smell it, they'll see it, and they'll say, that's what I want. And that's God's advertisement that the kingdom is real. We're to be walking, talking gospels read and known of all people. But that means we're supposed to stand out. It's supposed to look different. If you are following Jesus, the biblical Jesus, not the Americanized Jesus, but the biblical Jesus who, who, who goes to Calvary, uh, it's going to be kind of weird sometimes. Look at when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you're surrendering your life to a God who used his omnipotent power to get himself crucified. How normal do you think it's going to be? <laughs> think about it. You're following a, a Lord who says, well, the first, well, they're last. The last, they're first. Uh, you know, better to serve than to be served. How much, that's not normal. If you lose your life, you'll find it. That's not normal. You know, forget all and follow me. It's not normal. When you sign up for this, you're signing up to march to a different drummer that is out of sync with some of the most fundamental things in our culture because it collapses the knowledge of good and evil and you put faithfulness uh, over and above practicality. And if you walk with him and follow him, you will find times where he'll tell you to do some bizarre stuff. And I'm not saying be bizarre and weird just to be bizarre and weird. I'm saying be bizarre and weird in order to be beautiful. 
Be bizarre and weird in an outrageous, loving kind of way. So it may be that all of a sudden you're walking and the Lord just puts it on your heart that you're supposed to give the $100 in your pocket to that person and you obey them. That's weird. Yeah, that's weird. It may be that, that all of a sudden you feel a, a prompting to stop and, and you get a picture of something you're supposed to pray for. That's weird. Maybe all of a sudden you notice somebody who looks friendless and, and there's, a, there's an impulse to go and talk to that person and befriend them. That's not normal. Maybe all of a sudden you find there's, there's a, a family in the church or a family in the neighborhood that's poor and you just feel like God is telling you to kind of put your arm around them, take them under your wing, maybe start sharing some of your resources with them in order to get them back on their feet. That's kingdom kind of a stuff. It might be the Lord will tell you with your successful family medical practice to up and Take the whole thing into a third world country. And all these examples, by the way, are real life examples from Woodland Hills Church in the, in the recent past. Because God does work this way. God just might. Amen. God just might at some point tell you that, you know what, I want you to downsize a little bit. I want you to get a smaller house so you're not stressed out all the time with finances. I might, you know, why don't you get rid of one of those cars? He might tell you to do that. I'm not saying it's wrong to have, you know, two cars, but he, you just got to obey God. And that's swimming upstream in the American culture. God might have you say no to some really juicy, practically good opportunities he might say, no, say no to that. I know everyone in the planet, in America at least, would say, oh, you've got to grab that opportunity. But God might say, no, say no to that. Because I want you to spend more time with your wife and more time with your kids and more time in prayer and maybe more time in the kingdom. And as a kingdom person, we've got to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. God calls us to, in the Bible, and the Spirit calls us to, in our day-to-day -day life, to some weird stuff, and it all reflects radical, Calvary-like, serving love to the world. And that's what he uses to be a neon sign of advertisement that the kingdom is real. I'll, I'll close with this. It only gets fun when you go all the way with it. Doing, doing the, middle of the, the middle of the road, the kind of normal religion, where it's, you know, middle of the road, you know, nice and safe, don't offend anybody, you know, you just kind of you know, straddle the fence. That's boring. Old Adam life is boring. Old Adam religion is boring. Normal religion is boring. But when you start selling out to the kingdom and start walking in the spirit and take seriously the biblical call in your life and be willing to set aside practical goodness uh, for the sake of faithfulness, now things get exciting. Now things get fun. God starts to show up. The spirit begins to move. You see the reality of God uh, working in your life sometimes and, and, and he starts to use you in different ways. Now, when you're living on the edge, which is where we're supposed to be living, it's like the old saying goes, if you're, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Uh, well, if you're, if you're walking on the edge, you see, now the reality of the kingdom stuff starts to be there in your life. There's a joy, there's a peace, there's a power. You've died to the old self, and now there's just this dimension of your life that wasn't there before. That is normal for the new humanity. That's normal for this kingdom revolution. It's very weird to the old humanity and, and, and the old kingdom, but in Christ, that's the norm. So I encourage us all to put faithfulness to God first. At all costs, whatever the cost, whatever the price, to put that number one, to put everything else, including how you might see practical goodness in second place. And do it all, to, to do that is to say, to put following the God of outrageous love who went to Calvary for the very people who crucified him, to put that first and everything else in, in second place.